With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Support for today's episode comes from Stamps.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I am locked, loaded, and ready to fire away on this case today. Every week, we're getting closer and closer to shutting down the corrupt justice system of Smith County, Texas. But want to start today off with some happy news, really on kind of a personal level. Two weeks ago, I was finally able to get in contact with Edward Eight's mom. Margie and I have spoken on the phone several times, and I wish I had my phone plugged into the recorder in our first conversation. Once we got on the phone, and I told her who I was and what I was doing, and I told her that I'm working this case because I believe that her son is innocent, Margie absolutely lost it. She was screaming and praying into the phone. She kept saying, I knew my baby was innocent. I knew my baby couldn't do this. She was so emotional that she made me emotional. We've been on the phone for about two minutes, and there we were, both of us, crying. She was screaming that she knew her son couldn't do this because he was the kindest, sweetest person she ever met. She said that when he was young, he wouldn't even kill a fly. He'd catch it and take it outside and let it go. Now, I know all of this isn't relevant to the case, but again, I always like to have that reminder that we're dealing with real people here and real emotions. And Ed also wanted me to pass on to all of you listeners who've been sending him letters. I know that he's writing back and forth with several of you. I talked to him just before doing this recording, and he told me how much that's brightening his day. He said that he really hasn't had contact with anyone. He hadn't heard from his mother for a couple of years. He missed the passing of his grandmother. He hasn't heard from his brother, his wife, and his two kids, Kyra and Zachary, come by on occasion, but it's been almost a year since he's seen them as well. He literally hasn't had a single visitor in over a year, and all of a sudden, now he has someone to talk to a couple times a week. And every day at mail call, he's got mail. He's got people out there that care about him, that are writing to him, that he can write back to. And he made a point to tell me that it's really making a difference in his life. His whole outlook on everything has changed. And I can hear it in his voice. Every time we talk, he's laughing and he's joking. Earlier this week on Monday, he had to call me later than normal. And he said that it was because it was fried chicken day. Ed's job in prison is he's a cook. And he was laughing and chuckling with me and said, man, it's fried chicken day and everybody was going nuts. So it delayed him being able to call me. And along those same lines, I spoke with Kenny earlier today, too. Kenny was choked up, and I know a lot of you guys have been wondering what's going on in his case. And I want you to know that we haven't stopped working on Kenny's case. It's still being actively worked on, but we're just at a phase right now where there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that I can't report on just yet. But Kenny was choked up when he called me, and he said he got a visitor for the first time in a really long time, and it's someone that he hadn't seen in almost two decades. Kenny got a visit from his son who he hasn't seen since he was seven years old. His son had believed what everyone else had told him and believed that Kenny was a liar and that he really did commit those crimes. But somehow he ended up stumbling across this podcast. 
and he's been following along listening to his dad's case and decided to make the trip to Beaumont to see his dad. I can't describe how overcome with joy Kenny was when he told me this. He said they talked for a long time and his son plans to start making regular visits down to see his dad. And as Kenny put it to me, if nothing else comes of this, because of what we're doing here, he finally has a relationship again with his son. And Kenny also told me that he's gotten a few letters from several of you listeners. And just like Ed, he said nothing brightens his day more than getting mail call and he's got something to read from someone who cares about him. So if any of you are interested and would like to write a letter to either Ed or Kenny, just go to the website, truthandjusticepod.com, and click Case Documents. And the mailing address for each of them is listed right next to their photos. Now all of that is amazing, and it's an awesome effect of what we're doing here but it's time to get down to the real work. And that's getting those boys home. In today's episode, we're going to move along with the witnesses in the Edward Eights trial. Last week, we broke down the testimony of Elnora's boyfriend, Leonard Mosley. In a quick review of the parts of that that are relevant to today's episode, Leonard testified that he'd been dating Elnora, They had been talking about getting married. He had another girlfriend, or an ex-girlfriend-ish, Angela Walker, who he had a child with. He testified that Angela had moved back into his house about two weeks before the murder of Elnora Griffin. And he also testified that on the night of Elnora's murder, he got off work, took a shower, realized that he didn't have clothes to go to work the next day, and instead of going to Elnora's house, went straight home. And he says that he was home by 12.10. 10 minutes after midnight. But Angela's got a little bit different story. So for starters, and this plays into the victimology here, Angela testified that Elnora was the reason her and Leonard had broken up. She didn't specify exactly when, but sometime earlier in the year in 1993, she found out that Leonard had been seeing Elnora and they broke up. Now her testimony does corroborate Leonard Mosley's testimony that she had moved back into his house two weeks prior to Elnora Griffin's death. She says that when she moved back in, she didn't know that he was still seeing Elnora, and certainly didn't know that they were talking about getting married. Now remember, the two of them had a child together, and from the best I can figure, the child was just a baby at this point. And also, speaking of ages, I've finally been able to narrow down some more of these ages, and it paints a little bit clearer picture for us. So I said earlier that Elnora Griffin was around 50 when she was dead. Well, I finally got a copy of the full autopsy report, and the autopsy says that she was 47 years old. Now, Leonard Mosley was 34 years old at the time, so he was 13 years younger than Elnora Griffin. His girlfriend and baby mama, Angela Walker, was only 22 years old at the time of all of this. So we've got 47-year-old Elnora, 34-year-old Leonard Mosley, and 22-year-old Angela Walker. Angela testified that her and Leonard had been discussing her moving back in. Now, you remember Leonard testified that they were just friends, and he was just helping out a friend. But Angela has a different story. Angela testified that she had given Leonard a choice. She said that she told him he had to choose between her and Elnora. And from the sound of her testimony, the thing that was bothering Leonard was that Angela was spending some time with one of his friends. She testifies that Leonard was upset about her relationship with someone named Bobby, who was a friend of Leonard's. Now, I'm wondering if this Bobby would happen to be the same Bobby O'Neill that Leonard says he gave a ride home to the night after the murder, the night the body was found. But in any case, 
This Bobby guy had been helping Angela out around her house, and Leonard didn't like it. So he asked her to move back in with him. Now, this is according to Angela's testimony. She says that she told Leonard he had to make a choice, and she testified that she had thought he had made his choice because he moved her stuff back into his house. She further testified that she had just found out that he had still been going to Elnora's on Thursday nights and also found out that they had been engaged, or talking about getting married as he put it, the week of the murder. So according to Angela Walker's testimony, Leonard was seeing and was, at least in some respects, engaged to Elnora Griffin. He was upset that his ex-girlfriend, Baby Mama, was spending time with another man, a friend of his. He asked her to move back in. She told him to make a choice. And in response to that, he moved her stuff back into his house. Then the week of the murder, she discovers that not only is he still seeing Elnora, but that he was engaged to her. So there she is, living in his house, with their baby, and now finds out that he's still been, I don't even know if we can call it cheating on her, because it's so confusing all the testimonies. And Elnora's relationships are confusing too, but we'll talk about that next week. But here's the really important part. On direct, now Angela was called as a defense witness, but on direct she was asked on the Thursday night, July 22nd, 1993, the night Elnora was murdered, she was asked what time Leonard Mosley got home that night. And she explicitly states that he got home that night at 12.45, which is in direct conflict with Leonard Mosley saying that he got home at 10 after 12. Now also, during and throughout her testimony, she was presented, after she had said 12.45, with the written statement that she had given all the way back in 1993, where she said then, that Thursday night, he got home at 12.45. There's no question here. But then the situation starts to get a little more complex. See, on Wednesday night, the night before the murder, Leonard had supposedly left work and found a scratch on his truck. He talked to Angela and told her that he was going to be late because he had to wait for the sheriff's department to come out and write a report for the scratch. But even as this is brought up, she says explicitly that that happened. She was confused whether that happened Wednesday or Thursday, but she remembered on that Thursday night that he got home at 1245. She says that every night when he got home, he would crawl into bed with her and she would always look at the clock when he got there. And of course, she would remember that he got there at 1245 because he was 30 minutes late. So by the time the defense is done with direct examination, everything seems pretty cut and dry. Leonard says 1210, Angela says 1245. But then the prosecution gets up for cross, and things really start to go to shit. The prosecution used a pretty brilliant tactic of confusing this issue. See, Leonard Mosley gets off work at 11 o'clock, but he gets home after midnight, which is technically the next day. So Angela's talking about what time he got home that night. Well, throughout the entire cross-examination, every time the prosecution is talking to Angela, they keep referring to the morning. Anytime after midnight is considered morning to them, and so they'll ask her questions about what happened when Leonard got home on Thursday. And she'll start to say it was at 12.45, and then they'll say, well, 12.45 Thursday is actually Wednesday night. So it was Thursday morning when you had this conversation, things like that. And they, and they confuse this issue about this midnight crossing over from one day to the next, from night to morning, over and over again, to where I've read the transcripts about six times, and it's just completely confusing. So I can only imagine how the jury felt, and as you read the testimony, you'll see how confused Angela Walker was. So they bounce around between what happened Friday, when Leonard Mosley's brother came over and told him the body was found, to Wednesday when his car was scratched, 
to Thursday, and they just keep bouncing around in any way they look at it. Her memory of 1245 was not the Thursday night, not the night of the murder. But Angela sticks to her guns. Throughout all of this confusion, several times throughout the transcript, she says, no, I'm talking about Thursday night. When he got off work Thursday night, he did not get home until 1245. I'm sure of it. And the prosecution just keeps spinning away from this. On page 20 of the transcript, Shoemaker, uh, Dobbs' other assistant prosecutor, is going on and on about the car scratch and all these things. And Angela states, quote, But I know that he came home at 1245 Thursday night. Then again, on page 23, she says, He got home Thursday at 1245. Shoemaker asks her, Do you know what time he got off on Thursday the 22nd? Angela responds, It was right at 1245 when he made it home. Now, as you're reading through the transcripts, you'll notice that page 25 is missing. And that's nothing, I don't think, on Smith County's part. I think my scanner must have just fed two pages through at the same time. But as the testimony goes on, Angela is asked directly if Leonard went to Elnora's that night on Thursday night. And she responds, I don't know if he did. And again, she reiterates, he got home at 1245. Down on page 27, she confirms it again. She says, quote, I looked at the clock. I always look at the clock when he comes in. It was 1245. Again, on page 30, she tries to clear this up again. Again, she says, on Thursday night, going into Friday morning, he got home after 1245. Shoemaker again tries to get her off of this, and he spins it around several times again about the midnights back and forth. Then on redirect, she confirms again on page 32. She clearly says, I am not talking about Wednesday night into Thursday, but Thursday night into Friday, he got home at 1245. And it's also pointed out later that in the first trial in 1994, Angela Walker testified that Leonard got home that night at 1245. So when you filter through all the bullshit, it's pretty solid testimony. She is very confident now in the trial in 94 and when she gave her statement to the police in 93. Leonard Mosley did not get home that night until 1245. Unfortunately, I don't think that the jury caught this. And when you read the transcripts, you'll see why. It's just too much to filter through. It's too confusing. They certainly accomplished leaving some doubt that she had the right day by the time this was over with. Her testimony, despite all of this, was actually pretty solid in regards to the time Leonard got home that night. But then, as they always do, things start to get a little hinky with Angela Walker. Yeah, that's right. I said hinky two episodes in a row. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But getting back to a couple of inconsistencies in Angela's testimony. 
The only thing in this part of her actual testimony when she was on the stand that I found odd was throughout all of the pages of her testimony, through the whole transcript. She's talking as though when Leonard got home from work, she would be in bed, he'd crawl into bed, and she'd look at the clock and she could tell what time it was. But all of a sudden, towards the end of her testimony, on redirect when the prosecution is talking to her, they ask her if the lights were on when Leonard Mosley came home. And she says that they were. And then she says that they had had a conversation when he got home that night. Now keep in mind, Leonard Mosley never said they had a conversation that night. He testified that she was in bed and she was asleep. He testified that he can't remember if she even said anything to him when he got there. He wasn't sure if she was awake or asleep. But now, out of the blue, something she had never said before, she says that she was awake, the lights were on, and they were having a conversation, which led the prosecution to asking her, did he have any blood on him? Did he look like he'd been in a scuffle? To which she answered no to both of these questions. So all of a sudden, she's held tight to this 1245 timeline, which really is devastating to Leonard Mosley. He had no excuse as to why he was getting home at 1245 that night. He had testified completely contrary to that, that he had been home about 10 after 12. But she sticks to her guns throughout her testimony. But then she throws in this extra thing where, oh, by the way, I was awake, the lights were on, and we were having a conversation. And he didn't have any blood on him. It didn't look like he'd been in a scuffle. So I don't know what to make of that. It's almost like she's protecting Leonard. But she certainly wasn't protecting him before. Maybe that could have something to do with the fact that her statement of 1245 was already on the record from the other proceeding and from her statements. I don't know. But there was something else that she said that I found really interesting. The prosecutor asked her what Leonard was wearing when he came home that night. And she said he was wearing his white t-shirt and work pants. Now, back all the way up to last week. The reason Leonard Mosley gave for not being able to go to Elnora's was that he didn't have his work clothes with him. But then Angela testifies that that night he came home wearing work pants. But Leonard had testified that he had brought street clothes, for lack of a better term, to work that night. And that's why he couldn't go to Elnora's. Because he only had street clothes, he didn't have work clothes with him. Or he didn't have clean work clothes with him. So what could this mean? What are some possible scenarios here? Well, it could mean that Leonard Mosley was lying, that he in fact did have clean work clothes because he wore them home that day. Or it could mean that he was telling the truth, that he got off of work, took a shower, put on his street clothes, which I don't know what that means. I mean, we're talking about a t-shirt and pants, so maybe he's wearing jeans or something like that. And then for some reason, between the time when he left work and the time he came home, he changed back into his dirty work pants. Or it could mean Angela's lying and she was actually sleeping and doesn't know what he was wearing. But that's not the end of it. The inconsistencies with Angela's testimony go even further than this. Unfortunately, this next part, the jury never heard, or maybe fortunately for that matter. Angela Walker was going to be the defense's first witness. They were calling her to impeach Leonard Mosley's testimony about when he got home that night. But when the state was nearing the end of their case, I believe it was right around the time that they had Kenny Snow on the stand, Dobbs called a bench conference outside of the presence of the jury. He told the judge and the defense that he had just spoken with Angela Walker and she had new information for him that he needed to corroborate. Now, this is nothing that Angela Walker actually testified to. This came directly from Dobbs. Dobbs told Ed's lawyers and the judge during that bench conference that Angela had told him that she had actually been to Elnora's trailer that night, or been by it. He didn't really specify. But Dobbs says that Angela told him that she saw Edward H. crouching down behind Elnora's car the night of the murder, and also saw Ed's mother walking out by the street. Of course, the defense is outraged by this, 
but the reason for outrage wasn't necessarily because of what she said. It seemed to me they were more upset about the fact that they were going to call her as a witness, and now how could they do that? I mean, maybe this was all just a tactic on Dobbs' part. I don't know for sure. But it certainly made it so the defense could not call her, at least not right then. And Dobbs seems to be playing it straight. He says that he's not sure he believes her, and he wants to give her a polygraph test to be sure. So there's more discussion, and and I'll have this part of the transcript up on the website along with Angela Walker's testimony this week. But he says he wants to check out her story. And then after the next witness, they have another bench conference, and Dobbs tells the judge that he can get a polygraph done over the weekend. Now, this is never brought up again, at least not in the transcripts. Further down the transcript, Angela comes in, she testifies, doesn't say a word about any of this, and that's the end of it. But I don't know exactly what to make about this situation with Angela Walker, but I know for a fact that it's absolutely not true. And you'll see the reason for that if you go onto the website. I posted a picture of the street view from right in front of Johnny and Elnora's house. And you can see by the lay of the land there, there is no possible way that someone driving by could have seen Edward H. crouching down behind Elnora's car. Number one, the sheer distance of it. As you've seen in the other episode's case docs and looked at the overhead view of the crime scene, Elnora's trailer sits way back off the road. So even if someone was just standing there in a place where you could see them, you couldn't make out who it was from that distance. But secondly, the place where Elnora parked her car, which is right off the right end of her trailer, is covered up by a hill and a tree. You can't even see where she would park her car from the road. The hill's in the way. So your guess is as good as mine as to what this was all about. But if Dobbs was telling the truth, and Angela Walker actually said this, then it would certainly make some sense that she was trying to protect Leonard in her testimony. Because this part was absolutely a lie. But then again, we don't know if she ever even actually said it, because she never said it in trial under oath. We have to take David Dobbs' word for it. And I think you all know how I feel about that. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From here, I want to touch on briefly some post-defense behavior of both Leonard Mosley and Edward Ates. So this murder occurred on Thursday night. Sometime, according to Kubia Jackson, after 10.30. So what do we know about Edward Eight's behavior after the crime occurred? Well, we know that at least by 11.20, he was at his girlfriend's apartment. Now, on that note, if you go on the website and you look at the testimony from a couple episodes back of Marsha Bush, that's Ed's girlfriend, Monica's mother, she's the one that testified that she knows he got there at 11.20, and she corroborated that with a TV schedule. She said that she had been watching Unsolved Mysteries, and that she watches it every night, and that it would come on at 10 o'clock, it was an hour show, and there were two episodes back-to-back. And she said that she was just a little ways into the second episode when Edward showed up. So she based her 11.20 timeline on the fact that Unsolved Mysteries had been shut off towards the beginning of it, I guess. Because according to her testimony, it ran till midnight, but she knew he was there at 11.20. Well, I did some checking on this. 
I had to actually get a hold of the local library and have them get on microfiche and make me a copy of the TV guide from the Tyler newspaper on July 22, 1993. And in that TV guide, sure enough, Unsolved Mysteries reran on Lifetime, but it didn't rerun from 10 till midnight. I've got the PDF of that document up on the website. But the interesting part is it looks as though it started at 10 o'clock. If you're not paying careful attention to the document, it reads as though it ran from 10 o'clock till 11.30, which is not possible because it's an hour-long show. Well, when I got the information back from the library, the librarian told me that the show ran from 9.30 to 10.30 and from 10.30 to 11.30. Now, the reason for the confusion is that in those TV guides, they'll put code numbers in there. You'll see they'll be listing the programs, and then there'll just be code numbers thrown in throughout the document. Well, in the 9.30 slot, there's a code number typed in there. So Unsolved Mysteries doesn't appear until the 10 o'clock block, and then it appears again in the 11 o'clock block. But by looking at that document, Unsolved Mysteries had to have actually started at 9.30, not 10 o'clock. And the reason for that is that it does clearly show that another TV show called 30-something started at 11.30. That part is clear. Well, if it started at 11.30 and Unsolved Mysteries is an hour long, that means the Unsolved Mysteries episode had to start at 10.30 and the one before that had to start at 9.30. Now, this isn't huge groundbreaking information. It's not the smoking gun in the case or anything like that. But what it tends to indicate is the possibility that she may have been coached, that in an attempt to push back Edward Eight's timeline, because remember, initially, Monica testified several times, and we're talking the day after this occurred, that he was at her house by 10 o'clock. The first trial, she said he was there at 10 o'clock. But five years later, at the second trial, she testifies it was after 11. In comes Marsha Bush, who corroborates this and says, yes, it was at 11.20, and she uses something that there's clear documentation for to say that he got there at 11.20 based on her habit of watching Unsolved Mysteries five years earlier. So it makes me wonder if that testimony about Unsolved Mysteries didn't come from this exact document, a copy of the Tyler Morning Telegraph from July 22, 1993. But regardless of the time and how Edward got there, we at least know that he was at Monica's apartment no later than 1120. She says that he came in, they went back into her bedroom, they sat and talked for a little while, then they went out on the front porch and sat and talked there for a while, and then he left. He got home that night, and he calls Monica. He talks to her on the phone for about 30 minutes, and then he goes to bed. Now, if you go back a few episodes in the case documents and look at the testimony of Johnny Pryor, we can see what Edward was doing the next morning. Now, you remember that the night of the murder, around 8.30 at night, Ed had gone down to Johnny's house and talked to her about painting. That night, she had told him to come by in the morning when she got off work so they could talk about how much paint they needed or what the price was. Johnny testified that when she got home from work, which would be around 7.30 a.m., that Ed was out in the garden with his grandmother, Mrs. Dews. She testified that that was kind of a normal occurrence, that Mrs. Dews was always out there working on her garden early in the morning, and a lot of the time, Ed would be out there helping her. So she comes home, she sees him out there working the garden with Mrs. Dews, she said she was parking her car in the garage, and Ed walked down the hill to talk to her about the paint. They said they have a conversation about the paint, now her and Ed remember this differently, Ed tells me that they had agreed on the price, that she had asked him because his brother Kelvin refused to do it because she wasn't going to pay enough, 
She testified at trial, however, that Ed had given her a price of $450, and she told him that that was too much money and she wasn't going to spend it. But again, that's really neither here nor there. So Ed's post-offense behavior, if he was the one that committed this murder, is that he's somehow in some kind of a sexual encounter with Elnora Griffin, whether forced or otherwise. Somehow that turns into murder. He beats her up, slits her throat, attempts to conceal the crime scene, which is really a delayed concealment. I mean, the towel on the door and moving the car, these things might make people believe that Elnora's gone for a little while, but that certainly can't last more than a few hours into the next day. And if it was Edward Ates that did it, he definitely knew that. He knew that she worked at the same place as Kubia Jackson and Johnny Pryor. He knew that she always came by his grandmother's house after work. He would know that it's not going to be long before somebody's going to figure out she's in there. But in any case, so he would have killed her, attempted to cover up the crime scene, went straight to his girlfriend's house where he sat and talked with her. She said it was a normal conversation. Nothing was wrong. He leaves, goes home, calls her on the phone. They talk a little while longer. He goes to bed, gets up at 7 the next morning to go out and work in the garden with his grandmother, goes down and talks to Johnny Pryor about doing the painting on her house, and then leaves to go to work. Now, an element of his post-offense behavior that could seem disturbing is the fact that he lied about how he got to Monica's house. Remember, he told the police that she had came and picked him up. She told them that he had just shown up there. He later admitted that was the case says that he had actually taken his grandmother's car. Now, the prosecution's take on this is that that was an attempt to create an alibi for himself, that he took Elnora's car, left, drove out the driveway right past his grandmother's house, drove to Monica's house, and had a conversation to alibi himself, and then came back. And on its face, that seems pretty devastating. But you have to think about that behavior a little bit further. So put yourself in Edward Eights as the killer, hypothetically saying he was the one that killed her. And everything in the prosecution's case was legit and true. So there he is, sitting in the trailer with Elnora. She gets a phone call. Right in front of him, she tells the person on the other line, I'm sitting here talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. So now he knows, even if he doesn't know who it is, he knows that someone knows that right then, at 10.30, he's sitting there talking to Elnora. He decides would have to be immediately after that to kill her. And then he goes to create an alibi for himself at 11.20 at night. Now, mind you, he would have had to have enough time to get Elnora into the bedroom, to get her naked or her get herself naked, go through this whole struggle, slit her throat, then conceal the crime scene by taking the towel and nailing it up over the door before he finally gets in her car and leaves. But if he did that to create an alibi for himself, if that was the plan all along, then he did a terrible job at it. Now, again, imagine yourself in the mindset. Remember, you're Edward Eights, the murderer. You just killed this woman. The next day, the body's found, and the police drag you in for questioning. They tell you that you're the prime suspect. They told him what Kubia Jackson had said. But instead of creating an alibi for himself that lines up with that phone call, he tells the police that he left about 9.30, even though he knows they know that he was sitting in her trailer at 10.30. And then you have the fact that he went to Monica's house. He tells them that Monica had came and picked him up. Now, again, with the mindset of the killer, he knows that the next thing they're going to do is to call Monica and figure out if that's true. He knows he's going to be busted, so why put that big red flag on himself? All he had to do was tell the truth. I took my grandmother's car. I wasn't supposed to take it, but I took it. So why would he come up with this elaborate story about Monica picking him up? Well, personally, I think I know exactly the reason why. It's because Edward Eights wasn't the killer. 
he wasn't afraid of the police, and he had no concern that he was going to be arrested for this crime. But the person that he was afraid of was sitting in that room, and that person was his mother. He was afraid that his mother would find out that he took his grandmother's car. He was more concerned with creating an alibi for her not to find out he took the car than he was concerned about creating an alibi for this murder. And now let's look at the post-defense behavior of Leonard Mosley. Well, we don't know a whole lot about Mosley. He told the police that he left straight from work and went straight home. And he had a perfect, legitimate reason for that happening. Found out he had to work. He wasn't planning on that. He didn't have work clothes. So he went home. So maybe that story's true. Maybe it's not. But then we have the next morning. Angela testified that Leonard left the house the next morning at 7 a.m. Now, you remember, Leonard goes into work at 1130 in the morning. She testified that, quote, it was very odd for him to leave at that time. And she knows that it was 7 a.m. because she's supposed to be to work at 7. And Leonard had gotten out of bed, gotten dressed, and left the house without waking her or ever saying a word to her. She heard the car door closing outside and it woke her up. And she looked at the clock and realized it was 7 and that she was late for work. Now, nobody knows where Leonard was going at 7 o'clock that morning. Angela testified that she had no idea. She made clear that he normally doesn't leave until around 11 in the morning, and that that morning he just gotten up and left. But this behavior seems a little odd to me. It's not just that he got up earlier than normal and left the house. It's perfectly reasonable that he had something to do, and that he would wake up and tell Angela that he's leaving. But this was a normal routine. There was a normal routine that Leonard knew. He knew that Angela had to be to work every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. If he was in his right mind, he would know that by sneaking out the door and letting her sleep, that she was going to be late for work. Maybe he's just inconsiderate. I don't know. It could be that, or it could be that his mind was preoccupied with other things, and he didn't think about the fact that he was leaving the house while Angela was laying there sound asleep and that she was supposed to be at work. Only Leonard knows for sure. The last thing that I want to touch on today is some new information that I found out about Leonard Mosley. This whole time I've been investigating this case, I really didn't know much about the man. I've been searching for him through all my usual background checks and was coming up with nothing. I couldn't find somebody with that same name about the right age that lived in that area. But after I finally got a hold of Margie Jackson, the picture became clearer. While we were chatting on the phone, which by the way, I do want to point out that Margie doesn't think Leonard did this. She has another suspect in mind, and she knows Leonard personally. See, Margie at one time was dating and living with Leonard's brother, Allendale, and she was living with Allendale the day that he took her gun that she keeps for protection in her purse and shot and killed their brother, which is another crazy story for another day. But because she was in a relationship with Leonard's brother, she knew Leonard pretty well. The first thing that I caught in our conversation was, she kept getting confused when I was talking about Leonard, and she finally told me that the reason she was getting confused was because that she didn't call him Leonard. She said all the people that have known him his whole life all referred to him as Shorty. Well, of course, this caught my attention. She told me, as she described it, Leonard Mosley is a tiny little guy, and she also gave me the key to actually finding Leonard Mosley. She's the one that told me that he was much younger than Elnora. 
This whole time, I was thinking that he was about the same age, late 40s, early 50s. Like I said in the onset of the show, Leonard was only 34 at the time this happened. So armed with his new information, I started my search again for Shorty Mosley. And I finally found him. I remember back about a month ago when I did the crime scene analysis. I said that by my analysis, the person that murdered Elnora would be someone with a known relationship to her, they would be left-handed, and they would be someone short of stature, or possibly even another woman. And this was based on her ability to evade the struggle, to fight the offender off for as long as she did. Well, as I searched and searched and searched for Shorty Mosley, I finally found a picture of him. I don't have his exact dimensions, but based on the photos, by my estimation, Leonard Mosley is about five foot tall. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget to go out and purchase a couple of the songs or the entire album, Truth and Justice, the music. That's the soundtrack for the show, and all of the proceeds for the sale of that music goes directly to Johnny. And thanks for the, all the hard work that he's done in creating the music for the show. If you want to preview the music, you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And I want to give a special shout-out to my editor, Daniel Schaefer. Dan does all the editing for the podcast as far as cleaning up the audio and piecing everything together, and then I drop in the scoring music. And we've been on a very tight schedule getting this done. This case is so complicated, and there's so much to it, that I haven't been able to get the episodes for Dan to start working on until late on Thursday nights. And I need the episode back by Friday morning so that I can put all the music in. And week in and week out, I've been getting these episodes to Dan later and later. And every week when I get up at 5.30 in the morning on Friday morning, there the episode is waiting for me. So an extra special thanks to Daniel Schaefer for all of the editing work on a tight schedule that he's doing on the show. I also want to thank today's sponsor, Stamps.com, for funding the program. And as always, thanks to all of you for all of your work and dedication, whether it's sending letters to Kenny and Ed, sending me encouraging words, giving me leads, all of that makes a huge difference. And in fact, a lot of what I've told you today has come from listeners. I was able to track down Margie Jackson because of a lead that I was given by a listener. And the only reason that I haven't been naming names on the show for the people who have been helping out is just because this case is getting really complicated. We see the kind of shenanigans that the DA is pulling, and I don't want to call anybody else out right now. But those of you that I'm talking about, you know who you are, and I want to thank you for your help. And for all of you, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.